you're just now choosing to join with us, we want to welcome you to Bethany United Methodist Church, where we are leading people to experience God's love, to know Jesus Christ, to grow in His image. We're glad you're with us this morning in worship, and uh, hope that uh, you can uh, join us a little bit in celebration. You may not have palm branches, so maybe you just have to wave your hands in the air if you're at home. But those of you in the room, I'm just going to remind you, this is Palm Sunday, and the crowd's gathered, and they said, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is the one... Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna in the highest. Amen. Hosanna, you have saved us is what that means. So I'm going to read the story to you as we get started this morning. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The words that went ahead of him, the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, "Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven." When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them. And went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. This is a really traditional reading for this Sunday, and, and you've heard it, I don't know how many times before in your lifetime, but I'm just going to remind you a few things as we go through this. This crowd is greeting Jesus as if he was a returning victor from battle. And this was the, the way in which the generals, when they came back, they were greeted. The people would spread clothing on the road. It was a, a sign of their submission, a sign of respect uh, to the person. They would cut branches and, and lay them on the road as signs of life and wave them in the air. Uh, if you've ever been out in the more desert, desert areas of, of Israel, out in the wilderness that we've been talking about, the wilderness of, of Sinai, of sin and so forth, I mean, you, you see uh, you know, these branches waving in the air, and, and in the midst of that arid region where everything is just dirt and rock, when you see these, you know what that tells you? Water. And in that area, water is life. 
And so the palm branch came to be a sign of life in Israel. And when they would wave, wave these as they came in, it was a sign of saying, you know, you, you saved us. Hosanna literally means you have saved us. You've given us life through your victory. And so there's this tremendous proclamation as he comes in. And he, and he goes to the temple, the very heart of the city, the dwelling place of God uh, for the people of Israel. And, and, and he comes in and he begins overturning the tables. And that's a, sometimes that's a, a story that gets a little mixed up for us. In those days when people came to the temple, they would want to offer sacrifices. And, and the temple, you know, there were certain animals that were acceptable. And if they were financial sacrifices, they were to be done in shekels, not, not the Roman coinage, but in shekels because that was the, the coinage of the temple. And so people would travel from around, the, you know, all over the place to come to Jerusalem. And, and instead of insisting that they had to bring their animals with them, or find someone around somewhere who would take their Roman coins, which was the coin of the realm, and exchange it for shekels, there were businesses that were established there in the courts of the temple where folks could buy an appropriate animal for sacrifice or could change their money to the appropriate coinage for the offering. And, and when that began, it began as a way of a, a service, making it easier for people to come and worship God in the temple. But over time people began to take advantage of that and the prices went up and the exchange rates went up and people were making a lot of money off of these pilgrims who came to the temple. So Jesus comes into the temple, the very heart of the city, and overturns the table and runs them out, asserts his authority. He asserts his authority, right? And, and there in the temple, you know, he's challenged, you know, by, by the Pharisees and the scribes, the leaders. You know, are, do you hear what these kids are saying? Is, do you understand what they're saying about you? And I love the response. He says, yes. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And you need to hear very clearly his claim in that, his claim in that, to be son of God, to be Messiah. And at that moment, if Jesus had wanted to, all he needed to do was say the word and the rebellion would have begun. But instead, instead, the story ends with this verse. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. And for us this morning, that may be the most important verse in the whole story. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come on this Palm Sunday morning. We declare, Hosanna, you have saved us. You have given us life. You are the king, the king forever. And we come and we offer you worship and praise this morning. Uh, let your light shine on us. Open our hearts and minds and our spirits that we might hear what you desire to say to us on this day. Let the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we've been reading uh, in this story, the land between, the story of, of Israel's journey from, from Egypt to the promised land. And, and last week we talked about discipline, and this week we're going to talk about growth. And those two kind of go together. We, we tend to understand that you know, discipline is necessary for growth to occur. And, and particularly we understand that in terms of uh, physical kinds of things and, and sporting events where we understand the idea of you know, discipline and training in order to be better at what you do. And uh, same thing's true for musicians too. I mean, there's a, a discipline and a training for them to be better at what they do. Uh, and we, we get that. <clears throat> in fact, one of the uh, 
One of the movie scenes that, that's pretty iconic comes from the first Rocky movie. You all may remember this. There's about, a, I think it's about a seven-minute clip uh, in the movie where, where he's going through all of this training, and you, you see him running down the street, and he's running along the river, and he's running through the crowds and running here and running there, and then he's in the gym, you know, and he's punching the punching bag, and, and he's, doing, he's doing push-ups. He's doing one-armed push-ups. Now, I'm telling you, that's pretty... If you haven't tried that lately, you know, I'm just saying, that's pretty extreme. Uh, he's doing one-arm push-ups, and then they, they're doing the medicine ball and all those kinds of things. And he's, he's, he's just, you know, I mean, he's, you can tell he is just putting everything he has into this. And, and, and that clip culminates with him running up the steps and turning in this really iconic kind of picture where he raises his, city, his arms in anticipatory victory uh, over the city of Philadelphia. Now, now, how many of you know what building that is in Philadelphia? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's the Philadelphia Museum of Art, right? And, and if you go there now, there's actually, I think, I believe there's a bronze on the statue of this, a statue of this on the front of it now. But, but here's this iconic scene where he raises his arms, and, and we get that, and we celebrate it with him, and we, you know, we get into that. You know, he's, he's training, he's working so hard, he's preparing himself for this battle, this battle in the ring, and, and for the victory that's going to be his. And we get that. We understand that. That that kind of training takes place. But there's other kinds of training that happens too in our lives. Uh, not only physical training, but, but sometimes we need certain types of, of spiritual or emotional kinds of training. Uh, a number of years ago, a, a group of us in Corpus Christi went out uh, to a newly built ropes course. This was a new thing at that time. And I'm wondering how many of you have done a ropes course. Um, some of you have. I don't know if any of you at home have done one. There are they're courses uh, built out of basically out of telephone poles and, and rope and, and wire, uh, and, and you go on different elements. It's to emphasize uh, teamwork and reliance on your team, uh, and, and also to kind of force you to face some of your fears and, and limitations. So you start with the low elements, which are the things that are just a few feet off the ground. You know, maybe you walk down the length of this telephone pole, or you pass someone around you on the length of that telephone pole and try to do those things without falling off. And then you move to the high elements, which are, as I said, up high. And, and you can notice, you know, you're doing things like walking across a wire between two poles. And, and you'll notice, I mean, if you look at this picture carefully, what you should see is there's a, a wire leading up from the gentleman up there. You can just barely see it in the photo. Uh, there, there's a harness that you have on with a safety wire that goes up, and someone has uh, the other end of that wire on the ground is holding you so that should, should you slip, they catch you. And this is part of the practice because pretty much everybody slips at some point. And the idea is to learn that, you know, if, if I slip my colleagues or my coworkers or my friends, they've got me, they've got my back, and, and I'm not gonna fall. It feels inherently dangerous, but it's inherently safe. And there's professionals that are there uh, that have been trained in all of this so that they make sure that you've got the harness on correct and the people on the ground have the, the rope in the right way and you know, to make sure that you're gonna be okay. So it, it, it really is a very safe environment, but it does not feel like a very safe environment. And that's part of it. Face your fears. Learn to trust your colleagues as you're, you're going through this. And you walk these kind of elements. And then you come to the final element where you climb up and you stand on this pole. It's called the pamper pole. We called it that. I mean, that's what they call it in Corpus. Because when you stand up on top of that pole, you're going to kind of feel like you need to be wearing a pampers diaper. <laughs> so pretty unnerving. 
And you climb up there, and there's this pole. I don't know what, what they are, maybe a foot around or 10 inches around. And, and, and you're trying to get your feet up on it. There's nothing, you know, nothing to hold. You're on the top, nothing to hold on to. So you're trying to get your feet up on that and then stand up. Now, you'll notice the harness. You can see very clearly here. You've got a harness and a safety line on. Uh, but at the moment, it, it, it feels like I'm going to die. I mean, that's, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty frightening kind of thing. And if that's not bad enough, then they have you jump off and try to catch the trapeze. Now, here's the thing. About 75 to 80% of the people that do this will not catch the trapeze. And that's part of the exercise, to learn that when you go and you miss that trapeze, they've got you. The harness snugs you up. They lower you safely to the ground. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a frightening experience, and yet in some ways it's, it's a liberating experience because you learn that you're probably able to do things you didn't think you were going to be able to do. And you also learn that, that when you can't, when you can't do those things, that someone has you, that you're safe. It, it's a tremendous training for, for teams to go through and for individuals uh, to be part of uh, this kind of spiritual and emotional kind of training. And, and what Jeff Mannion is going to talk about in, in this section of his book is, is the way in which that training produces growth in us. And sometimes it, it produces growth in us that we don't expect, we can't see, we don't anticipate. And sometimes the training uh, is intentional. And sometimes it arises out of the hardship that we live through. For, uh, for my family, uh, the, the winter of 98 and 99 was our, one of our training periods and experiences. We went through when we, we lost a matter of three months. We lost my wife's grandmother and then her mother and her father. And they were, uh, we were going in and out to San Antonio where they lived. We were in Seguin. We would be driving back and forth. And repeatedly, I would get the phone call, you need to come. You know, you need to come. I had to go into San Antonio and to be with my wife and her family as they suffered yet another death in their family. And then as we were making arrangements. And, and we did all of that uh, in the context of the 500-year flood in Guadalupe County. And so I would go in to be with my wife and her family, and we'd be making funeral arrangements, and then I would come home to this and come back where we were working with the county and the county commissioners and the various agencies trying to help people recover. And, and you remember we talked last week about meltdown, right? There, there were times going through that that, that I really... I, I, I was at my wit's end. I, I kind of felt like I'd, I'd gone as far as I could go, and I got to that point where I would just be saying to God, okay, that's it. That's it. That's all I can do. I cannot take anything else. You know, I'm, I'm done. This is as far as I can go. And, and inevitably, whenever I'd get to that point, I would say, you know, Lord, if there's just one more thing, there would be one more thing. You know, somebody in the church would have a death, or there'd be a serious illness. Or someone would be angry because of the way we were handling things. It would make it a point to let me know about it. Or the county commissioners would decide there was one more thing that we as the churches should be doing. And would call a press conference to let us know about it. That was one of my favorites. <laughs> and, and, and so it was kind of moving through that. And in the midst of that, uh, I would get phone calls or visits from colleagues who would just kind of say, How are you doing? How are you doing? And, and it was always just incredibly encouraging to me that someone reached out to me in the midst of that. But what I would tell them was the same thing every time. I'm, I'm just doing one day at a time. I put one foot in front of the other. Every night when I get ready to go to bed, I'll say, Lord, you know, here, here's the day. I hope I didn't mess it up too bad. And, and every morning I would just be praying, Lord, be with me today because I don't know what I'm doing. 
And we went through it one day to the next, to the next, to the next. And in the middle of that, one of the things we learned was that no matter how bad it got, God had us. No matter how bad it got, God had us. No matter if you miss the trapeze when you jump off that pole, someone's got you. No matter how bad it was, God had us. And we learned to lean into that in that time. It was a kind of an act of training to trust that God had us and would hold us through that time. And as hard and as difficult and as painful as it was, God redeemed the hardness of that experience and what he taught us in that time. Jeff Mannion talks in his book about a couple that's a member of his church uh, about 20 years ago now uh, that, that went through a, a really difficult period in their life. The, the wife was an athletic director at a Christian school and, in their area, and the husband was the director of a prison fellowship for the state of Michigan. On the husband's birthday, he got a call, which he assumed was his wife calling on you know, for his birthday or something to you know, invite him to something or celebrate something. And instead, it was a friend of his wife's that worked with her that was calling him to tell her, uh, you need to come to the school. Your wife's been in an accident. She's had a fall. And he's thinking, you know, she tripped on something or, you know, you know something like that. And, you know, it's going to be some stitches and all this. But actually, she had been taking some things up to storage on an open stairwell and had fallen off and fallen 12 feet onto a concrete slab. And the result of that was a permanent loss of the lower parts of, of her legs, the use of her legs, paralysis. And so there began a period of time in, in their lives when every day they were figuring out, what do we do next? Every day. They had to learn everything all over. Her husband would say, you know, she has one challenge now in life, and her one challenge is to figure out how to do everything in her life differently. I was reading that and I thought, well, you know, we had kind of the, the light version of that through the last year, about this time, a little before this time last year, everything shut down. And all of a sudden, we, we had to learn how to do things differently, didn't we? Now, I don't know what your household was like, but uh, my wife brought her office home to our home and we set up her computers and screens and got her all hooked up and everything. And and I was exiled out of my office downstairs to the kitchen area to set up my computers there so that we would both have our space to work in. And, and we began that process. And, and we had to figure out what we were going to do here. How do, we, how do we do online church? And no one in the room and, and uh, just our brothers and sisters that we were preaching to online, which felt really strange and awkward. And we didn't always do very well. Uh, and we wrestled through that. And how do we do this? And how do we do that? And everything we came up against we had to do differently. And, and you have an amazing staff here who responded to that, made that pivot uh, extremely well uh, and, and figured things out and learned how to do a lot in a hurry, things that we're going to continue to benefit from for years. But, but it, felt, it felt like we were learning to do almost everything differently. Now, as hard as that was for us, uh, that was a logistical challenge for us for Jeff Mannion's friends, it was, it was an existential challenge because it wasn't just part of their lives that was rearranged. It was every single piece. Everything was different. And in the midst of that, he said he would talk to them and say, how are you doing? How are you holding up? 
and, and they would share with him the, the frustrations, uh, the struggles, uh, the, the hard days, the difficult times. And he would say, how's your faith doing in this? And they would say, our faith is holding steady. In fact, the, the husband and wife kind of coined a little phrase out of one of Philip Yancey's books that became their motto through this time. The husband had it engraved on a bracelet for his wife. And it said this, life is difficult, God is merciful, heaven is sure. And they held on to it through that time. All of the spiritual training they had done up to that point, all those years in worship, all the Sunday school classes and Bible studies, the small groups, everything they had done in spiritual training prepared them for this moment in their lives. They never imagined it. They didn't desire it. But nonetheless, they were prepared to walk through it faithfully. I mean, sometimes our, our spiritual training is, is um, so ordinary to us, and we forget that the value of it sometimes surfaces most powerfully in the midst of very difficult times. And in the same way, sometimes because of our spiritual tra training, as we move through life and we're going through hard times in our lives, we're able to see where, where God comes back and, and begins to redeem those difficult moments in life. Mannion talks about being on the trampoline with his son, and they're bouncing on the trampoline and talking about things, and his son says, hey, Dad, how, how did you and Mom meet? He says, well, we, we met when we were in high school together. And the son says, oh, he says, but you met her here in California when you were in high school together. And he goes, yeah. And he says, well, he says, but he says, you know, if, if, if your mother hadn't died in Idaho, y'all wouldn't have moved to Michigan, would you? And he says, no, that's why we moved to Michigan. And he says, well, but when you moved to Michigan, that's when granddad met Grandma Carolyn, right? And he says, yeah, that's what I, right. He says, and then when he met Grandma Carolyn, that's what caused y'all to move to California, right? And he says, yeah, that's why we moved to California. And he says, so then after, we moved, after you moved to California, that's where you met my mom, right? And he said, yes, that's right. And so the son said, so if your mom hadn't died, you wouldn't have moved from Idaho to Michigan. Your granddad wouldn't have met my grandmother. Y'all wouldn't have moved to California. You wouldn't have met my mom. And he said, that, that's correct. And then the son said this, if your mom hadn't died, I wouldn't be here. And all of a sudden, Mannion said, you know, he, he just, it opened his eyes that the gift of this child that he was on the trampoline with was directly connected back to the death of his mother. I want to be clear. <laughs> He's not saying, and I'm not saying, that God calls the death of his mother for that purpose. But out of the tragedy of his mother's death, God brought the redemption of the gift of this beloved child. And it was all of his spiritual training over the years that allowed him to see that and to claim that. God trains us up to move through difficult times in life, and God trains us up to see his hand at work in the midst of that. And he grows us to be able to be faithful, even, even in the midst of the very difficult world that we live in. And it's even when we move through the kind of year we've just moved through. So I want to come back to this, this, this Palm Sunday story, this last verse, and help you understand why that's so important. At the beginning of Matthew's gospel, right after Jesus' baptism, is the story of his temptation. 
Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, I think that's one of the big understatements in Scripture. He wasn't just hungry. He was starving. I mean, he'd been 40 days and 40 nights. He is starving. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. How often in the rest of his ministry, you know, after feeding the 5,000, were there opportunities to feed when he understood that what was more important than the bread was the word? And how often was the temptation there to use the bread instead of speaking the word? Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Here Satan quotes Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12 to him. And how often did Jesus remember this moment when he was in Jerusalem facing his arrest and beating and crucifixion maybe that night in the garden of gethsemane praying you know father if there's a way to take this cup from me nonetheless not my will but yours and then there was a third temptation again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor all this i will give you if you will bow down and worship me and Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. All of this I will give you. And was this what Jesus was thinking of that day in the temple? Because there's the moment. There's the moment. Say the word, Jesus. You don't have to go to the cross. You become the leader of the uprising. The people honor you. Israel throws off the, the shackles of Rome at least for a while. And you're honored as the great Messiah. And, and instead of serving the world, he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Because in that, in that moment, the choice was, do I, do I serve the politics of the world or do I serve the politics of the kingdom? Do I, do I serve as the Messiah for a temporary uprising in Israel or, or am I the king forever? Do I make the life of this group of people only better or do I bring salvation to everyone forever? This is the moment. When he chooses again, does he serve the world or does he serve the kingdom? And you and I, when we gather here this morning, we are the ones that are blessed because he made this choice. I mean, if he had chosen otherwise, he might have been Messiah for a while, but Rome probably would have come back in at some point and wiped him out. And he would have become a footnote in history, a Jewish rebel who led an uprising that was later defeated 
and he would have been forgotten. And you and I would be on our own. And instead, he remains faithful to his mission. And he remains king forever. And he brings the gift of life to you and to me and our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren to the end of the age. So this morning when we come and, and we celebrate the reason we still celebrate and say, Hosanna, you have saved us, is not because when he entered into Jerusalem, the crowds all thought he was coming to, to liberate them from the Romans. But when he left the city that night, he made it clear that he was there to be king for us and to liberate us from sin and to bring us the gift of life. And so even this morning, some 2,000-something years later, we still gather in Christian churches all around the world and we wave the palm fronds and recognize that he still brings us life. And we shout, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he. Blessed is he. Who comes in the name of the Lord. Who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna in the highest. Yeah, let us pray. Almighty Father, we come, we give you thanks this morning. We worship and praise you because you did not settle for the things of this world. You did not settle for the politics. You did not settle for the praise of the crowd that was around you. But you remained faithful to the purpose for which you came. And in doing so, you brought life to us. You brought life to our families and those we love. Not only in this generation, but for all generations. So this morning, hear us as we praise you. You have saved us. We give you thanks in the name of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.